0: What I want to do to start is give an observation and ask a question. And both of them, I suspect, if you're anything like me, are disquieting, uncomfortable, disturbing. But I think this passage raises them for us. Here's the observation. And and most human beings know this. But many times in a church, in any religious community, there are motivations, there are reasons that we might be tempted to ignore this or even deny this. And I just want to point out something that's here in this passage, but also is absolutely undeniable in human history, which is this. Some of the worst, most terrible human beings are very religious. Some of the worst, most terrible human beings are very religious. Paul presents himself from his own retrospective vantage point. This is how Paul perceived himself before he became a Christian. And even though he doesn't explicitly say, oh, was actually a sinner. I didn't actually obey the law the way I thought I would. The one place where he shows his card is that his religious zeal caused him to persecute the church of Jesus. Religious people do terrible things all the time. Religion often makes people worse than they were. And so any just default setting of being secular is bad and being religious is good. It is not as simple as that. Religion often acts as a profound force of injustice and evil in the world. And so simply showing up to church every week, praying a lot, reading your Bible, identifying very strongly and experiencing the world in a religious way is not itself sufficient to say that you are honoring God, that you are a good human being. That is not true of Paul before he became a Christian, and it is not true of many religious people today, including many people who claim to be Christians. Here's the second thing, and here's the question, this passage you could come at a lot of different ways, but one of the things it, it raises for me, and which is always an uncomfortable question to ask, because you have to get real with yourself in uncomfortable ways, is why are you religious if you are religious? Why do you believe in God? Why do you come to church? Why do you obey some rules and some commands? Why do you identify as a religious person? What is it that makes you religious? And this passage, I think, causes us to step back and ask what our motives are. Ask what our agenda is. Ask what the goal is. Why are we religious? Um, especially when we know that religion can often cause people to do things that are profoundly evil. Again, if you just want to look after this passage, if you've been tracing, um, tracking along with us in Philippians, imitation, imitation of Christ, imitation of other Christians who themselves are imitating Christ, such a pervasive theme, but right after this passage in verse 15, Paul will say, and this will be our passage next week, let those of us who are mature... Think this way. That is the way Paul thinks in our passage. And if in anything, you think or have a different mindset. God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk, according to the example you have in us. So again, the goal of this passage, if you read a little farther, although it's clear and implicit in the passage itself, is Paul wants us to go and do likewise. Paul wants this to become part of our story too. To put it this way, 20, 30, 40 years from now, if you're recapping your story for somebody else retrospectively, that there should be shades of the story that Paul is telling here in the way that you tell your story. Not in that you're necessarily Jewish or that you were religious growing up or that you excelled in this guilt, but other things in this story are there for us to imitate. Later in the next chapter, chapter four, verse nine, notice how he, right before he goes into our final passage, which we'll get to in three or four weeks, he says in chapter four, verse nine, what you have learned and received, and heard, and seen in me, practice these things, imitate these things. And here's a promise, and if you do, the God of peace will be with you. That's a high claim right there, that if you imitate Paul, you will actually be imitating Jesus. Um, The first thing I want to point out, and then I'm just going to draw a series of contrasts, and and, um, let let me say this before I get into the passage itself. It is always true that some texts resonate more and are more important in certain contexts. Um, So, for instance, a passage about people struggling with poverty and struggling with injustice and suffering from a majority is not going to be as relevant to us as Christians in Manhattan today, because we are in the top 1% of the winners in history. We're not being persecuted. We're not struggling with poverty for the most part. And so a passage like that, it's not that it's not relevant for us, but it's not going to speak to us the way it would speak to Christians in North Korea. Or in russia or, or somewhere else on the other hand i suspect and someday we'll get here lord willing that for instance first corinthians is probably more relevant for us than it is for many other christians throughout history because most of us come from not just gentile but pagan backgrounds we are um we find it incredibly difficult to avoid the logic both of idolatry and sexual immorality and corinth is very similar to new york in the ancient world it is diverse ideologically, racially, socioeconomically. And the kind of problems that you see in the church in Corinth are strikingly similar to the kinds of problems you see in urban young churches in America today. And so I just wanna say with that said, that I suspect that foreign a church like us, we're in lower Manhattan, most of you did not grow up here. Most of you, I mentioned this last week, probably most of you have pretty elite education backgrounds or pretty elite jobs right now. You guys are compared to most Christians and most churches in the world now and throughout history are closer to what Paul says here about where he starts than most people would, that we are a church of winners, beautiful people, successful people, elite people. And so I suspect that what Paul says here is going to be a little more relevant, but also more difficult for us than it would be for some other churches. And just to kind of jump ahead of it, um, and, and maybe this will be something that if you're a Christian or you've grown up in church, maybe you'll, you'll, you'll say with your lips, but really the end game of this passage, at least in part, is for us to really recognize, not in, on, in lip service only, but deep in our heart, that if you are a Christian, one thing you know that maybe other people will know is that you are a loser, that you are a loser. And that is not an easy message for this context. Because the only people who get here are people who have risen above everybody else, the cream of the crop, all of that. And this passage reminds us that everything we think that sets us apart, everything that we think, whether we admit it or not, makes us better than other people, is actually an illusion, is actually not just not worth anything, but is actually a loss, is in the deficit column. Um, it is true that if you are wealthy, or if you are really good looking, or if you are really charismatic, or if you have an elite background the more privilege you have the more difficult it is to believe the gospel and to really take it seriously the more success and and the more of a winner the more privilege you have the more that actually acts as a deficit when it comes to the the christian faith and so let's start with this and i'm going to draw out a couple of contrasts here in this whole passage is in a sense polemical starting in verse two Almost everybody agrees and in verse 2, when Paul says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, that he is describing the groups that show up in Galatians and in Romans and elsewhere. Sometimes they're called the Judaizers. Almost certainly they are both ethnically Jewish and Christian. So they are ethnically Jewish and they observe the law, but they're not Jews in general. They are those who think that Jesus is the Messiah, but who follow Paul from city to city. And who follow up after he gets gentile christians to convert to christianity They say great job we also think she's the messiah but you need to be circumcised now and you need to become culturally jewish and you need to observe the mosaic law and this group follows paul from city to city if you want to get a sense of what paul really thinks about them read galatians it is a very very intense letter and this group there what is significant and and for the sake of time, I'm not going to go here at all. If you are interested in this or if this passage raises it for you, um, at some point in the last year, I will find this and I will, I will send it out and I'll mention it next week. At some point in the last year, some of you might remember this, I gave a sermon where we talked about anti-Semitism. And we talked about, for instance, like Martin Luther and in the Protestant Reformation, his tendency towards profound Evil Anti-Semitism, a great example of how religion can make people evil. This passage is one of the six or seven passages in the New Testament that has often been used for anti-Semitic purposes in church history. Look at these Jews, the dogs, the evil-doers, those who mutilate the flesh. I'd say two things really quickly. First is that Paul is a Jew. And talking to Jews, if if someone who is black says something to the black community, and then I as a white man say exactly the same thing, I am saying something profoundly different. And so for those of us who are not Jews, be very very careful about using a language like this. The second thing I would say is that this is not all Jews, but it is Christian Jews who are going to Gentile context. He is not disparaging Judaism, he is not even disparaging obeying the law as a Jewish Christian, he is disparaging making Gentile Christians first become Jewish in order to become Christian on something very specific and I would say as we move on, these three epithets, these three negative disparagements, dogs, evildoers mutilating the flesh are classic Jewish criticisms of the Gentile world. Jesus calls the woman, the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, a dog. Why? It's not, it's not a racist insult in a drug. It's a way of saying, you know what Gentiles are like? They're like dogs. How so? They're unclean and they will eat anything you put in front of them. Right. They will eat anything you put them. We're gonna eat some crazy stuff in an hour and a half back at our building. Um, and if anybody is loved, or I live in Rico Park in Queens, which is about fifty percent Jewish, and specifically Bukharan Jews, the largest population of Bukharan Jews in the world, and they are still largely observant. And restaurants close down on Friday nights and Saturday nights in my neighborhood. Do you go to an Italian restaurant or a Chinese restaurant in my neighborhood, it's kosher because if it's not, you lose happier business. And so Paul is saying, this is a typical criticism of Jews to Gentiles in the ancient world. They're like dogs; they will eat anything you put before them. And dogs are unclean animals in the Levitical laws. They are evildoers. They're filled with idolatry they will sleep with anybody have sex with anything they are greedy they are awful they, they disobey god's law and they mutilate the flesh as opposed to judaism where there's a high reverence for the body most gentile cultures throughout the world got earrings i got a tattoo right here i still got some earring holes from when i was younger we just do stuff to our bodies we mutilate the flesh and to judaism it's like how would you do that with the sacred temple that god has given you and yet here is paul Looking at these ethnic Jews who claim that Jesus is the Messiah, but who are looking at Gentiles and saying you need to become Jewish to be a follower of Jesus, to be part of the people of God. He says they're the dogs, they're the evildoers, they're the ones who mutilate the flesh. There's a lot of irony here. They are actually the ones who are now outside the people of God. They are the ones who are actually disobeying God. They are the ones in asking Gentiles to get circumcised are doing nothing more than mutilating the flesh. But we, most of whom are uncircumcised Gentiles, are the circumcision. That is, in Christ, Jew and Gentile, simply by faith in Christ, this is now the locus of the people of God. And then he says this, and here is a great verse to to reflect on every once in a while. (laughs) We are the circumcision, the true people of God. And what does that mean? And he gets three defining characteristics of the circumcision, the true people of God. We worship or serve, That's not like we sing songs on Sunday morning only. That's all of our service of God happens by the spirit of God. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic is that we boast in Christ Jesus. And the third characteristic is that we put no confidence in the flesh. If you want to know whether a church is healthy or not, whether our church is healthy or not, church that you go to in the future, if you move away, or you go to another church in the city at some point, here is a great litmus test. For um, evaluating the culture of a Christian community. Does service happen not in the flesh, but by the spirit of God? And how do you even know that? What, What does that look like? Do people boast in Christ or in what he's done or in other things? And do people put confidence in the flesh or not? And and this is the culture that the gospel seeks to produce in any Christian community, serving God, not in the power of our own flesh, but by the spirit who indwells us, boasting in Christ Jesus and his accomplishments, not our accomplishments, and putting no confidence in what every culture in the history of the world puts confidence in, which is something about the flesh. We'll talk about that in a minute. So what I want to do, and then Paul just talks about, um, And let me actually back up here and, and Say this, there's a lot of connections between chapter 3, <coughs> verses 1 through 11, and Paul's story, and the story that he told of Jesus in chapter 2, 5 through 11. For instance, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to use for no advantage, but he gave it up. He emptied himself and counted his loss, and Paul used that language. What I once considered to be really important, I have now counted his loss. I've now considered loss. The most important connection is notice that the story has the same three stages. What's the opening stage? Unmatched privilege, unmatched privilege. You think anybody else has reason for confidence in the flesh? I have more. Here's a man who starts without equal. He has no equal. And then he empties himself and he loses it all and he is humiliated. And in the end game is that he is honored, vindicated, exalted. And the same passage from privilege to self-emptying to then going back up is the story of Paul the same way it was the story of Jesus. And so in imitating Paul in this passage, we're really just imitating Jesus. So here are three things, and this is the whole message today. Um, Something about grace, something about faith, and something about the Christian life. Here's what I want to say about grace that grace, when it enters our lives, it's not to say that grace wasn't part of Paul's life on the day he was born. Every human being experiences God's common grace, but the, the saving grace of the gospel, when God's saving grace really shows up in a person's life, like it did with Paul when he was maybe 25, 30, 35, we don't know how old he was, but whenever Paul became a Christian, that's when grace shows up in his life in a saving way, and here is something that I don't think we can wrestle with enough, reflect on enough, that when grace shows up in your story, for some of you, it might have been really early on in life because you grew up in the church, and not to say that you were a Christian from day one, and not to say that sin isn't part of your story, but for some of you, it can be really hard to have a sense of before and after, and everything's really mixed. One of the things I'm honestly grateful for, having not grown up in the church, Becoming a Christian in college, so I have a very clear sense of before and after. Now that also brings a lot of baggage that if you grow up in the church, maybe you can avoid. <laughs> but I'm always thankful for that. But wherever grace shows up, when grace shows up, it shows up in our story, in our lives, in the form not of confirmation, but of disruption. That when grace appears in somebody's story, it doesn't top off and reward the amazing stuff that was already happening. It disrupts what was happening. And many of us tend to, especially in American culture, associate, if it feels good, God did it. If it feels bad, then either God is abandoning me or maybe Satan's doing it or maybe I don't know enough faith. But there's this sense of we disassociate God from heartbreak, from trauma, from difficulty, from broken dreams. And here, the first moment grace showed up for Paul was the most painful moment in his entire life. And every agenda he had, every aspiration he had for the years and decades to come, came to a screeching halt. And that was the grace of God showing up in his life. George Hunsinger says this, and he's pointing to Karl Barth theologically, and then I would, I would say, especially these short stories are so worth reading. Flannery O'Connor is a great writer who, who knows this. Uh, George Hunsinger says this, grace that is not disrupted is not actually grace. A point that Flannery O'Connor, well grasped alongside Karl Barth, grace strictly speaking, does not mean continuity with what was happening before, but radical discontinuity. Not reform, but revolution. Not the perfecting of our virtues, but the forgiveness of our sins. Not the improvement of our lives, but the resurrection of dead people. It means repentance, judgment, and death are actually the portal to life. The grace of God really comes to lost sinners, but in coming, it disrupts the core. It slays to make alive, and it sets captives free who did not know that they were captives. It is necessarily as unsettling as it is comforting. It does not finally teach of its own sufficiency without also appointing thorns in the flesh. Grace is disruptive. Because God does not compromise with sin and injustice, nor ignore it, nor call it good. I grew up... um in the 80s, and so I remember when the original Star Wars movies came out, and so like a lot of Gen X, which most of you are not, most of you are a generation behind that, or a generation in front, probably one of the few Gen Xers here, now that I think about it, is I had a profound sense of disappointment with both the prequels and the sequels of the Star Wars movies, and I still remember, there was this line though that stands out to me, is in the second of the sequels, I think it was called The Last Jedi, a few years ago. What was probably most controversial about that movie is that it took Luke Skywalker 20, 30 years of the original movies in a very different direction, his character arc. And he was cynical and despairing, and he had kind of given up on his earlier hope. And and regardless of what you think of that storyline and whether that was a good move, there's a line he says in that movie to his apprentice, Ray that I think is a great line that would be fitting at every Christian's baptism when they become a Christian. This is not going to go the way that you think it is. This is not going to go the way that you think it is. That is always an element of God's grace. Our starting point is, I'm already on the right track. I'm trying to do the best I can. And here's all the things that if God was faithful and he was good, that my life would look like over the next 30 years. The only thing I can tell you about that is that if God's grace does show up in your life, it will not go the way It will not go the way that you think it will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship, says, when Jesus calls a person to himself, he bids him come and die. He bids him come and die. And so dying with Christ is a central aspect of the Christian life. And notice, it is when grace shows up, not when grace disappears, that Paul's life is absolutely upended and disrupted. And so grace does not come in to just give him an extra boost on the track that he was already on. It comes in to disrupt him and to put him on a different road altogether. And Paul does not assume that he is unique in that. He assumes that all Christians, if they can narrate their stories rightly, will be able to trace that dynamic, that life is followed by death before it gets the resurrection. And there is, if our culture, like the ancient world, was obsessed with upward mobility Following Jesus includes a real new trajectory of downward mobility, <coughs> of losing things and giving things up that you before could not even imagine going without or not having as your identity. Karl Barth, who was mentioned uh, indirectly as Samuel, he loves to say throughout his writings that God always says no to us in order to be able to say yes to us. But he has to say no first. He has to say no first. And so if you have Any paradigm where God never says no to me, otherwise he's not loving, you will be very poorly equipped to recognize the grace of God when it shows up. Grace comes in not to confirm, but to disrupt the narrative that was there before, the trajectory that was there before. Um, And so encourage you to look for that in your story, whether it's already there. But you currently narrate it as God's hiddenness, God's abandonment, or your own failure, to maybe begin to narrate it as it was the beginning of God getting my attention. It was the beginning of God making me the kind of person who could actually be available to him and to other people and to get me off the wrong track, rather than seeing it necessarily as a tragedy that got you off the right track. That's an important part of narrating your own life and and recognizing where God works. Flannery O'Connor in her short stories, the one thing that's always in every short story is that grace shows up for people who are despicable and awful, but when it shows up, terrible things happen. And there's a a word that's used for Flannery O'Connor, which is the grotesque. That when grace shows up in a person's life, it is grotesque. And I think that's a good description of what Paul is saying here is when grace showed up in his life, pain increased, confusion increased, tragedy and sorrow increased. Now, it's not where the story ends, but the story has to go through that in order to get where it's going. And so grace is disruptive. And if you are struggling with where God is at in your life, Paul's story, Damascus Road, imagine Paul five minutes before Jesus shows up in the Damascus Road and what his mindset was at that point compared to what it was in the decades to come. That's a great thing for us to wrestle with every once in a while. Here's the second thing, and and this will get more encouraging, I promise, but you gotta go through the disruption to get to the good stuff, is the Christian life as a whole, Paul reminds us here, is not about our achievement, but is about God's gift. It's not about achievement, but it's about reception. When Paul contrasts here, as he often does in his letters, the flesh and the spirit, here are two things that he does not mean by that that I think Christians often think. He's not referring to the inward invisible part of you, which is your spirit, and the outer physical part of you, your body. He is not even referring to physical worldly things and invisible spiritual things, and these are pure and these are bad. What he's referring to is anything that is flesh is that which is merely human, And anything that is of the spirit of God is is God, It's, it's a contrast between humanity and God, and specifically two forms of agency, two forms of activity. The flesh, and this is probably the most important, the flesh is not only, it's not even mainly that which is bad and sinful in itself. When Paul says, I'm Jewish, not Gentile, that's flesh. When he says I was circumcised on the eighth day, when he says I was a Pharisee, not a Sadducee or a scene or or this or that. When he says I observed the law, when he says I had these credentials, that's all flesh. A lot of you have LinkedIn profiles. Everything on your resume falls under the category of flesh. And you are to put no confidence in it. Not because it's bad but because it is not what God is doing. It is not to be relied on. And so the spirit versus flesh contrast is about that which human beings, anything that arises from us and our natural characteristics, our genetic background, your Myers-Briggs and Enneagram profile is flesh. That's what it is. Your racial makeup, your socioeconomic status, your resume of every job you've ever had and every school you've ever attended is all flesh not because it's bad, but because it is merely human, and it is your achievement, and Paul has a story that he wants to imitate, where you come to see that as not only not a value, but also of something that's actually in the deficit column, something that in and of itself tends to keep us away from the grace of God, tends to keep us away from trusting in Jesus, and so this is about reception, not achievement. Here are a couple of questions that are all really the same question that I, I, I regularly find as I get older, I give to people. I've given some of these to some of you in the last couple of months to ask yourself. Um, there are classically two reasons, sorry, but there is classically a main reason that when Protestants come to this task, righteousness, justification, by faith, not by works, Why can't we be justified before God? Why can't we be righteous before God by what we do, but only by what Christ has done for us and faith in that? And the classic Protestant answer, which is right, is because your good works are actually sinful and they're not what you think they are. And if you bring them before God on the final day, you will be shocked at how far, far, short you fall, that you are not nearly as good as you think you are. Now that is profoundly true. It also strikes me as not quite the main point Paul is making he doesn't describe all of these achievements as bad for the most part, although when he says he persecuted the church, he, he hints in that direction, but he describes them as just a profoundly bad idea that you would ever bring these before God and that God would look at you and be like, "Paul, you're better than those losers. You're justified and they're not, that that's already a mistake. So here's the second reason that I think as Protestants we should probably reflect on more, which is even if we had not sinned, it is a mistake for creatures to approach their creator as if we have something to give. him, To which he would respond by saying, good job, I am now in debt to you. Here's what I owe you. And so here are a couple of questions from scripture. I would encourage you to even maybe note down the passages are like, at the end of the book of Job, there is a mysterious character named Elihu who shows up. He's not one of Job's three friends. And there is a huge debate over whether Elihu is a good character or a bad character, whether he's a repetition of the three friends or whether he's wise. I'm very convinced he's a good character. He's wise, and he's contrasted with the friends, and he's basically setting Job up for meeting God and hearing from God in the whirlwind. And whatever else the book of Job is about, it is Job's three friends and Job arguing over how to interpret the suffering that Job has experienced, the disruption that Job has experienced. And for all of their differences, Job and his three friends agree on certain things that get exposed and undermined. And one of them is that the universe and the relationship between creator and creature is that of a bargain. If we do what we are supposed to do, then God is obligated to respond this way, and if we don't do what we're supposed to do, then God is obligated to respond with judgment. Both Job and his three friends agree with that. The three friends solve the conundrum by saying Job's actually wicked. Job solves the conundrum by saying God's not faithful. But they both assume that that's how the universe works, and Elihu shows up at the end, and he asks Job a question. I remember I had a mentor, not a pastor, but a, a Grad school professor years ago, when I was probably younger than many of you are now, who said this to me. He said, this is a great question for us to ask ourselves. A couple of times a year, and to really reflect on it. Elihu says to Job in Job 35, verse 7, Job, if you are righteous, what do you give him? Even if you do everything you have ever been asked to do by God, what have you given him? That you would think that he would step back and be like, what I've done without you. What would I have done without you? My wife, Helen, on the Enneagram, her flesh, I'm a four on the Enneagram, which is the best one. Um, <laughs> Helen is a one, which means she's very motivated by duty and responsibility. I'm a four, I'm very much not motivated by that. And, and so one of Helen's favorite passages, um, because for me, and, and next week or, or soon, I'll, I'll, I'll give a story where I'm the one who's, who's criticized here. But something that I often tease Helen about is that even if I do... Like, even if I have a really good week as a husband, is she is inclined not to be super affirming and, and praising towards me. And I'm just waiting for praise. She's like, clean the toilet. I, like, I did this. I brought you some flowers. And there's this uh, story that Jesus tells in Luke 17 of these servants who are working in the field all day. And she says, when they get back to the house after their shift, do they expect the master to say thank you? Do they not rather say we are merely unworthy servants who have done what we were supposed to? That's the best case scenario for a creature. You just did what you were supposed to do. You're an unworthy servant. None of us are even that because we have not done what we were supposed to do. And so who asked Job, Job, you are assuming that if you are righteous, you have given God something. If you are righteous, what have you given him? What have you given him? That is a great question to ask yourself. About how you're motivated. And in Job 41, verse 11, God himself appears out of the whirlwind. And Paul will quote this thousands of years later in Romans 11 and ask Job a second question, which is really the same question Who has ever given a gift to me that he should be repaid? says the Lord. Who has ever given a gift to me that my response would be, I'm in your debt, John. I'm in your debt, Sally thank you, I couldn't have done without that. C.S. Lewis says this in Mere Christianity, if there was any idea that God had set us a sort of exam that we might get good marks by deserving them, that has to be wiped out. If there was any idea of a sort of bargain, any idea that we could perform our side of the contract and thus put God in our debt so that it was up to him in mere justice to perform his side, that has to be wiped out when you become a Christian. I think everyone who has some vague belief in God Until he or she becomes a Christian, has the idea of an exam or of a bargain in his mind. The first real result of Christianity (laughs) is to blow that idea to bits. When they find it blown into bits, that's disrupted. Some people think this means that Christianity is a failure and give up. They seem to imagine that God is very simple-minded. In fact, of course, God knows all about this. One of the very things Christianity was designed to do was to blow this idea to bits. God has been waiting for the moment at which you discover that there is no question, no possibility of earning a passing mark on this exam or of ever putting them into your debt. That needs to be disrupted. Then comes another discovery. Lewis says, every faculty you have as a human being has been created by the creator, your creature, every faculty you have, your power of thinking or of moving your limbs from moment to moment has simply been given to you by God. If you devoted every moment of your whole life exclusively to his service, you could not give him anything that was not, in a sense, his own already. So that when we talk of a man doing anything for God or giving anything to God, I will tell you what it is really like. And this is one of my favorite illustrations it is like a small child a week before Christmas, going to its dad or mom and saying, dad, mom, give me six pence to buy you a birthday present or a Christmas present. Of course, the dad, the mom does, and he or she is pleased with the child's presents. It's all very nice and proper, but only an idiot would think that the parent is six pence to the good for what has happened in this transaction. When a man has made these two discoveries, religion is not a bargain with God, and you cannot give him anything that he has not first given you, God can really get to work. It is after this that real life begins. The man is awake now. And Paul awoke on the Damascus Road to these realities. And so one of the things I encourage you to notice about yourself, whether you are religious by temperament and background or not, whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, whatever your distinctives are, that all of us in different ways have this dynamic, which is that in our pride, we are offended by the grace of God. In our pride, we are offended. One of the marks of a certain kind of liberal hypocrisy here in the Northeast, which I grew up in, I'm not saying that conservatives are better, but here is a kind of posturing of condescension to people outside, but a sense of, of my kids are not going to do that. My kids are going to a good school. My, my kids aren't going to public school. My kids aren't going to need that. And in a sense of what's okay for other people, we don't need that. That's not for us. In a real sense, whether you it or not, that we are better than other people. We are not like other people. At the heart of sinful human beings is a posture of sneering towards others and being a snob in response. And Paul was a snob, so is each and every one of us until grace disrupts our story. One of the things that grace is meant to disrupt is your snobbiness, is your sneering at other people who don't have your accomplishments and your whatever it is that you see as good and valuable. Martin Luther, the reformer said this, This evil is planted in all human hearts by nature that if God were willing to sell his grace to us, we would accept it more quickly and gladly than when he offers it for nothing. If God was willing to sell it to us, we would be more excited about this. Karl Barth says much later on, the greatest hindrance to faith is again and again just the pride and anxiety of our human hearts, we would just rather not live by grace. Something within us energetically rebels against it. We do not wish to receive grace. And I love this line. At best, we prefer to give ourselves grace. That's a great line. That's a great line. There is an old episode of Seinfeld, and I want you to recognize yourself in it, hopefully on both sides, where Jerry has a friend who is a, a dormant in a really fancy Manhattan, Upper West Side, Upper East Side, you know, fancy, fancy condo building. And he goes and meets his friend. who's just a doorman in the, in the lobby one day at one night. And he's just so surprised at how bitter and resentful and judgy his friend is to all these millionaires who live in the building. And they come out, don't look him in the eye and treat him like he's nothing. And he has this line. It's just the whole episode where people walk by. And as they walk by, he said, you think you're better than me? Think you're better than me? And uh, and he's just got the sense of they all think they're better than me. But he has himself now perceived himself to be morally superior to these snobs. And and Jerry's like, You shouldn't do this. Just like they're idiots, they're rich people, they don't get it, just do it. And and this guy gets sick, and Jerry takes over for him one night as a bar as the Norman, And by the end of the night, Jerry's like, You think you're better than me? Because all these rich people are walking by and freaking one like a dumb. And there is, in each one of us, a tendency to look at other human beings and you think you're better than me. you think you're better than me? I'm better than you. I'm better than you. Every tribe, every personality type does this. I said a couple of weeks ago that, um, to put it this way, if you want to think about this in Galatians 4, and we're going to celebrate this in a couple of weeks with Advent and with Christmas. This is what the, the Philippians story is about in Philippians 2. That according to Galatians 4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the curse of death and sin. And think about like this, that five minutes before Jesus left his throne and became a human being, that what preceded the incarnation was not a smear on God's face. What losers that I have to bail them out like this? What losers that I have to bail them out like this? And one of the things, I said this a couple of weeks ago, I suspect that hundreds of years from now, in the same way that we look at old black and white civil war photos, and we're kind of surprised at like how serious they are, or like the gookiness of their sideburns, or whatever, that one of the things that will stand out about our culture is that everybody has a sneer on their face. Is that everybody is sneering all the time towards people who have different political ideologies, people who don't do what you do, or don't believe what you do, you're sneering all the time. And the incarnation didn't flow out of a sneer because it didn't come from a snob. And when Paul met Jesus, he was still a snob. And for all of us in our sin, there is still a snob that needs to be disrupted, there is still a sneer that needs to be wiped off our face. David Foster Wallace, one of the great writers, but who also struggled with a lot of mental health issues and a lot of substance abuse addiction. Um, and, and killed himself, I think when he was in his mid 40s, one of the great writers of the last generation. He says in a lot of his stories that he would end up just absolutely humiliated in like an AA meeting with like high school dropouts and homeless people. And he was this Ivy League professor who had been nominated for appeal Prize, And he's sitting here in an AA meeting and he can't beat addiction. And he's just surrounded by losers. And there was a sign, I don't know if all AA meetings have this, but it just, it got into him. And I think it's one of the ways that grace disrupted him. And there was just a sign of your best thinking has gotten you you. Your best thinking has gotten you you. And I would say this, that when the moment of disruption comes for each of you, I want you to know that your best thinking got you there. That your best thinking got you there. That what we are, apart from Jesus, is not somebody who is better than others, but somebody who is desperately in need and desperately unable to help themselves. The thing that separates that Canaanite woman from the Pharisees and the disciples and the crowds is that the one thing she says when she comes up to Jesus Lord, help, help. The only thing she says, and I think saying help is the hardest thing for a snob to do, for somebody who thinks they're better than others to really just say help. I cannot help myself. I need help is incredibly challenging. And so, as we come to an end, um, I, I want to try to make alive something that I think too often is either abstract and, and because of that and not powerful enough, which is what justification is—justification by faith apart from works—the central. Protestant biblical doctrine. What does it mean that you are counted righteous before God, not by what you have done, but what Jesus has done? And just relying on that. And it's very easy to reduce that to an abstract formula. Here are the two steps of justification that I want to put a metaphor on. I worked in, in a lot of know I worked with Ivy League students for about 15 years. And Ivy League students have resumes. They often tell you their resumes. Um, even when you didn't ask. And uh, and they have impressive resumes. And a lot of you have impressive resumes here. And there's also something that had a lot of schools. I worked for about 10 years in a campus ministry where I worked with Harvard students. And a lot of you know that Harvard is in the news right now with this court case at the Supreme Court over how you admit certain students and it's affirmative action and it's this and it's this. And, and there's something called being a legacy student or a legacy admission at Harvard and all other schools, which is basically the only reason he got in is that dad gave $5 million to Harvard and his name's on the building. You should be in a community college, but you're walking around Harvard because you're a legacy admission. Here's what it means to be a Christian. On the one hand, it means that when you show up, you tear your resume in half and you never pull it up on your computer again. (laughs) That you get rid of it. That you treat it as absolutely insignificant. That your CV, your resume, and your LinkedIn profile has absolutely no significance to you anymore. And you publicly renounce it as having anything to do with who you are or or where you're going or anything there and that you really do. And two, that you publicly acknowledge that the only reason you're in the kingdom of God is because you're a legacy of mission. It's because of what someone else did for. And not just that you know that secretly before you and God, but that you are open and public about this with our bells. I'm only here because I'm a loser, but my dad's really rich. And that is the only reason you are here. That is the only reason I'm here. And if you can experience that disruptive grace and then walk down the street and have a sneer towards somebody else, have you forgotten what story you are in? Anybody who's arrogant is insufferable, but a legacy student who is arrogant Oh, it just drives me nuts. It's like you're here because your dad's rich. You don't ever get to brag. And we don't ever get to brag because we're here because of what Jesus has done for us. And so one of the things that Christianity does is that it decenters us in the narrative. Paul tells his own story in a way where you're like, well, oh, this is interesting that a guy who was Jewish became a Christian and became one kind of religious one to another kind of religious. But really the whole story is about Jesus and about how Jesus' grace showed up in his life. And so to become a Christian is to be decentered. You're not thinking about your LinkedIn profile anymore. You're not thinking about how and why you're better than others. You're not thinking this. You are just thinking with gratitude and the central emotion in Philippians with joy. And, and here's how I want to end that to be a Christian means not just to confess, to really get this deep down, that two things are true about you. You are a loser who is loved anyway. That you are a loser who is loved anyway. And if you do not know that about yourself, you will not be able to serve God well and you will not be able to love your neighbor well. You will always have a sense of, God be so thankful to have somebody like me in his service and so helpful to these poor people who couldn't otherwise get together. And you will do that. And so here is what Calvin says. What is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue in order to be clothed by God? That we are empty of all good so that we could be filled by him. That we are slaves of sin who need to be freed by him. That we are blind, needing to be illumined by him. Lame, to be made straight by him. Weak, to be sustained by him. To take away from us all occasion for glorying that he alone may stand forth gloriously, and we boast in him. And then he says this, and here is a line I would encourage you to maybe reflect on. Paul, in this passage, recognizes that nothing was more harmful to him than his own righteousness. Paul recognizes, when he looks back on the story, nothing was more toxic, nothing was more poisonous, nothing was more harmful than my resume, than my righteousness. Then the ways that I looked at God and said, you're welcome, God, that you have somebody like me in your service, looked at Gentiles and said, what losers, they need to be persecuted. But instead, the grace of God disrupted that. And so let's go back as we end to those three distinguishing marks in verse three. We are the circumcision. We are the people of God. What does that mean? That we serve God by the spirit of God. That is not by our own activity and relying on that and trusting that, but trusting in and relying on what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. That we are oriented towards depending on God's gracious provision, past, present, future, rather than turning inward and looking at us as, as where the rescue and the help is going to come from. And then these two things, that we put no confidence in the flesh, go back to the metaphor, we have ripped up the resume. If you are a Christian, part of the culture is you have to rip up the resume before you get baptized. You have to rip up the resume. And we boast in Jesus Christ, I'm only here because of what he did for me. I'm a legacy admission. And we boast about that. We are public about that, that we are losers who have been loved anyway. And so there is, this is a longer quote. I'm not going to read much of it. So I'll send it out later. Here is what I want you thinking about as we go, from Paul's story, which is Paul tells his story, and this is a great line from Samuel Wells, a British Christian, fought at Duke for a long time, great guy, incredible thinker. And he says, most of us aspire to a story where when we narrate it 50 years from now or somebody else narrates it, the final impression that it leaves that we were a hero. That's the story we wanna live in, we wanna be heroes. Samuel Wells says, the stories that Christians tell about themselves, about others, should not be stories of heroes but of saints. And here's what he means by that: the word "hero" does not appear in the New Testament. The word "saint" occurs all the time. What is the difference between a hero and a saint? A couple of occurrences present themselves. To start with, there is a significant difference between the kind of story that is told about heroes and the kind of story that is told about saints. The hero always makes a decisive intervention at a moment when things are looking like they could go badly wrong, the hero steps up and makes everything turn out right. In other words, the hero is always at the center of the story. By contrast, the saint is not necessarily a crucial character. The saint may be almost invisible, easily missed, and quickly forgotten. The hero's story is always about the hero. The saint's story, is always a story that is really about God and the saint is on the periphery. Next comes the question of why the story is even being told publicly later on. The hero's story is always told to celebrate the virtues of the hero. And admit it, isn't that what we're all looking for in the next 50 years? For our virtues to be celebrated by others, to be recognized by others, for us to be seen as the hero that we are. That's the story Paul was in before the Damascus Road. The hero's strength, courage, wisdom, or great timing, such are the qualities on which the hero's decisive intervention rests. By contrast, the saint may well not have any great qualities. The saint may not be strong, may not be brave, may not be clever, may not be opportunistic, but the saint is faithful and trusts in God. The story of the hero is told to rejoice in the hero's valor, the story of the saint is told to celebrate the nature of faith. And then third, there is what the story takes for granted. The definitive heroic icon is the soldier who defeats through his own strength. Of force. the classic icon of the saint is the martyr who suffers and who dies for others and who participates in Jesus' suffering. He goes on, I'll share it later, but I love this idea that the story that we're in is not a story where we will be recognized on the final day at the judgment seat of God as a hero but that we will be recognized as someone who trusted in God and in what he has done for us, what he will do for us, what he is doing for us. And I would love for you to hear the story of Paul and aspire for it to be your story. It won't look exactly the same, but if there is not some level of there was this privilege, this thing that set me apart from others and I was looking for it to give me identity and meaning and righteousness. And then there was a disruption and then everything changed on the other side, and yet joy came, service of others came, and worshiping God came, then we need to go back and think about our stories, because this is the story that is set before us, because it really is just the story of Jesus. And so let's pray, and then we'll go into the Lord's table. Father, thank you for the